Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm Natalie Pearson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Opdyke, who is a lecturer in humanitarian engineering in the Faculty of Engineering here at the University of Sydney. And Aaron is also the Philippines Country Coordinator for the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. His research looks at international humanitarian responses to communities recovering from the aftermath of disaster and conflict. And he's particularly interested in safe and equitable shelter. Aaron, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Today, we're going to be talking about disaster risk reduction in the Philippines, but this is really a global issue. According to the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, in the last 20 years, disasters killed 1.3 million people and left another 4.4 billion injured, homeless, displaced or in need of emergency assistance. Within the next five years, it's estimated that 1.6 billion people globally will lack access to secure, adequate and affordable housing. And last year, crisis, disasters and conflict displaced an unprecedented 65 and a half million people from their homes around the world. Aaron, what does the situation look like in Southeast Asia or more specifically in the Philippines where most of your research is focused? So if we look at the Asia-Pacific region, really what we've seen over the last decade or two is the rising number of disasters. Um, And the Asia-Pacific region really is one of the most affected by disasters globally. And we can look at a few specific events that really are evidence of this. So in 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami, which really affected Indonesia and Thailand, it killed over 200,000 people. And this was really the impetus for, for a lot of the current global disaster risk reduction strategy. And if we look at other countries, so Myanmar in 2008, Cyclone Nargis uh, was one of the most devastating in terms of the loss of life. And then more recently, as we, we look over the last several years, in 2018, the Sulawesi earthquake and tsunami in Indonesia again, really bringing up this question about where we're at with disaster risk reduction efforts. But behind each of these disasters, there's really an immense human toll. And in the Philippines more specifically, the country is really no stranger to disasters. The country is home to a dizzying array of different hazards, and these include everything from earthquakes to volcanoes to landslides to floods. But a lot of my work focuses specifically on typhoons, which the country sees almost an average of 20 of these per year that enter its waters. And again, looking at some specific events, in 2012 and 2013, we saw that Typhoon Bopa and Typhoon Haiyan, um, some of the most devastating that the country has seen in recent history. And then again, looking more recently, so if we look earlier just this year in 2020, the tall volcano just outside of Metro Manila, it killed about 39 people, and then it blanketed millions of people in ash. Aaron, when one of these typhoons come through, how much notice do communities usually get and what steps can they take to keep themselves safe? So what we've seen over the last several decades is really the rise of early warning systems has given communities much more advanced notice for these types of events. So in the Philippines, communities often have days of warning. And we've seen and we did some work in 2014, specifically after Typhoon Hagapit, which struck the central Philippines. And we found that fewer than 1% of people actually were unaware of this particular typhoon approaching. And this is not uncommon if we were to look at other typhoons in the Philippines. 
But what was interesting behind this is that we saw about 86% of households, they actually received their information from their neighbors. So in addition to more traditional means, we're seeing that these community networks are really important for the dissemination of information. But beyond that, what we're seeing is that 30% of those people that we had surveyed, they actually decided not to evacuate and leave. And so there's this much more troubling issue when we look at just moving beyond the dissemination to actually convincing people to reach safer locations. What is the difference between a humanitarian engineer and your regular engineer, a civil engineer or an electrical engineer, for example? So I think humanitarian engineering in many ways draws on the core principles of engineering. I think one of the key differences is that we really try to seek and apply that engineering knowledge in resource-strained communities. So you're bringing together ideas relating to equity and social justice, for example. You're thinking much more broadly about supporting communities Exactly. So I think really what we we try to do is engage with the complexity of social and economic systems and understanding how that shapes or how that needs to be incorporated better into uh, engineering designs, or particularly in the disaster space. Really what we're trying to do is understand how those technical solutions can be better applied in these very difficult and challenging contexts. In the aftermath of one of these typhoons, for example, uh, one of the things that people do tend to focus on is housing Why is that so important when we're talking about disaster recovery? So housing is really critical, um, partly because when we look at in developing communities, it moves beyond just a place where individuals live. So in the event of disasters, it often is that safe shelter and it provides them an opportunity to ride out the storm. But one of the issues that we see with that, and particularly when we look at the Philippines, is that much of that housing is built using substandard quality materials. And so the average house isn't necessarily suitable for a household to ride out a storm. And so I think going back to what I was talking about earlier, I think it's important for those social ties because often um, what we see in the Philippines is that in a lot of cases that households do evacuate to friends or neighbors, and that provides a critical resource for them to address sort of those impacts of, of storms on a regular basis. Okay, so one of the other characteristics of post-disaster responses is on that immediate response, the immediate aftermath of the disaster. And we might think of this in terms of those crucial first few months or even those first few weeks after the typhoon, getting houses rebuilt and that sort of thing. But your focus is broader than just four walls and a roof. So how do you, as a humanitarian engineer, define recovery in these situations and how long do you think it really takes? So I think when we look at defining recovery, it's a very complex and difficult question, but a lot of the current movement around disaster risk reduction has garnered support around this idea of build back better mantra. So recovery isn't just about trying to restore things to the state that they were in before. The result of that is just the perpetuation of these disaster events. And so we really need to think about addressing the underlying vulnerability of communities building resilience into their infrastructure, strengthening social ties, ensuring that people's livelihoods is resilient to different types of disasters. And I think if we look at the timeline of that recovery, and it moves beyond what we would typically think about. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions of disasters is that recovery is going to happen in a year or two. And often we do start to see that there's visible signs of recovery during that period. But the reality for many communities is it can take a decade or longer for them to fully recover from larger disruptions. And so an example of this, if we look from the Philippines, is that 
you know, many of these aspects are, are harder to see in the longer term. So if we looked at Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, for example, nearly a million coconut farmers lost their livelihoods overnight. And those trees that were lost, in a lot of cases, it can take up to 20 years for them to regrow. So you get a sense of just how long it can take for some of these dimensions to fully recover after a disaster. I like this idea of building back better. But in the Philippines, millions of people lack access to clean water, to safe shelter, to power and to other basic services. So how do those existing inequalities impact upon their ability to respond to a disaster or to build back better, in fact? So the Philippines is, is no stranger to poverty. So if we think about that, for many households, poverty itself is a perpetual disaster. So for many households, when we look at trying to convince them to invest in their housing, to be safer to, for disasters, or to invest time and effort in preparedness, it's quite difficult. And so in a lot of cases, we're battling a lot of basic needs that are still unmet. So whether that's adequate shelter, clean water, electricity. So it's really hard to start a conversation without having those basic needs met first. Yeah, so it's not just about responding to the disaster. You've talked about this idea of improving resilience. What steps can communities take to improve their resilience to disasters? So I think it starts with small individual steps at a household level. So what we see often is that a lot of households haven't even thought through the step of where they would go in the event of a typhoon or the, the actions they would take. And that's not only specific to the Philippines. We've seen globally that's been a major focus of disaster risk reduction efforts individual level, we can all think about the actions we would take about where we might go, ensuring that we have a plan in place, that you have individual items ready to take with you, that you're prepared for an event should it come up. Beyond that, though, if we think about local governments, I think they really have a key role to play. And this is where a lot of my current research is focused at the moment. So I think beyond and, and really as a link between sort of national efforts is that local governments have a, have a role to play in strengthening the ability for communities to actually respond, organizing them around collective ideas and actions in the event of disasters. Is there any um, research being done in the Philippines in the disaster space on the role of people with disabilities? So there's quite a bit of work on the role of disabilities in disasters and how those can be addressed and incorporated into planning efforts. So there's a number of different organizations that are involved in that, and that's really a critical role. And some of it is our own researchers here at the University of Sydney. Um, so we have other colleagues that are looking at this area, and it really is critical when we think about vulnerabilities of disaster-affected populations. More broadly, um, when we think about who's actually affected in a disaster, those with disabilities are often some of the most affected. And so it's really important that we bring them into the planning process and that they have a leadership role in that. You've briefly touched on this in terms of the role of local government, but I'm interested in what local partnerships can bring to developing strategies for post-disaster recovery. Are local governments working with grassroots organisations or do you do much of your research in collaboration with these NGOs? Partnerships are really key when we talk about work in post-disaster recovery for a few different reasons. One is the innovation and the new ideas that they bring. And so traditionally, if we looked at NGOs or academic side, is that a lot of these different institutions have ingrained practices. And so I think by bringing organizations together, we can really start to formulate better approaches to more inclusive recovery for communities. And so a lot of my work is seeking to bridge this divide and make connections both with local governments, non-governmental organizations to better understand how we can address the needs of communities. What particular challenges do you face with your work in the Philippines? 
So I think there's lots of different challenges when we talk about working in the Philippines. So I think at a face value, the Philippines can often seem in many ways similar to Western countries. So for example, it has one of the highest percentages of English speakers globally. But then beyond that, it has a very distinct and unique culture. And so I think it's often easy to take for granted your own assumptions when you work in that context. And so I think that's one challenge, I'd say, um, on the research side. Beyond that, though, I think is that the Philippines continues to face significant challenges in its development, um, and particularly around inequality. So if we look at the Philippines is solidly a, a middle-income country, but it still has many regions that severely lack basic infrastructure services and are underdeveloped. And so I think working in those can be quite challenging when we look at that divide. So bridging, again, sort of much more developed and advanced systems at a national level, and then at a local level, that, that capacity that really, in a lot of cases, is severely lacking. And so trying to merge those two systems can be quite difficult. One of the big discussion points in global discourses relating to disaster is in relation to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Can you tell me what the link is between disaster risk reduction and sustainable development in low to middle income countries like the Philippines? So disasters really are this major setback for hard-won development progress. So if we looked on an annual basis, disasters are, are continuing to drive about 26 million people into poverty. And so those efforts really set back. So if you looked at even the first of the SDGs in reducing global poverty targets, disasters provide are a major impediment to that. Beyond that, so if we looked at as institutions and, and what's being done around this, um, again, so the Australian government in 2020 alone, they're going to invest in the Philippines specifically almost $80 million in development assistance that's specifically targeted towards resilience and infrastructure. And so when we think about this, we can see governments really are starting to gardener around this idea that disaster risk reductions needs to be incorporated if we're to fully realize sustainable development objectives. Now, we've talked a lot about disasters in this conversation and in particular typhoons. I'd like to finish by asking you a question about language and terminology. So astute listeners will notice that we haven't been using the words natural disasters. And I just would like you to explain to us the difference between a natural disaster and a disaster and why there is this push amongst disaster scholars to use one term rather than the other. We would argue that there is no such thing as a, a natural disaster. And so I think that the first of those terms is really a misnomer. I know it's a, a quite a minor difference, but I think it's important when we talk about disasters for several different reasons. So the first of these is really that disasters, um, when we think about them, they're really composed of two different elements. And so we can think about a hazard. So in this case, maybe a typhoon or an earthquake. And that in of itself is really a naturally occurring process. So there's, there's nothing that we can do about that. And if a typhoon occurs in an area where there aren't people, um, we wouldn't say that there was a disaster. There likely was no impact as a result of that. But much more important to disasters is that formulation of this idea of vulnerability. And it brings in the social and our infrastructure systems and our economic systems. And so I think it's important for us to understand that disasters themselves are social phenomena. They're driven by our decisions in society. You know, disasters themselves are preventable. We can do something about them. Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction between this idea of a natural hazard, such as a tsunami, for example, and a disaster, which can only occur in places where a society or a, or a community exists. And that really puts community right back at the heart of your research. Looking forward, what differences would you like to see on the ground um, in communities in the Philippines in terms of how they respond to these disasters? 
So I think going back to, the, to what I talked about before, I think is really placing an emphasis on and, and giving local communities a leadership role in disaster risk reduction efforts. So I think continually, we do look at this from a top-down perspective. So it's often global disaster risk reduction strategies or nationally led efforts, but really at the heart. And I think if we're to realize reducing disaster losses, we really need to give communities the front seat and, and let them take a, a role. Well, Aaron, I wish you uh, every success in continuing to do your your work and your research in the Philippines and and working together with those communities. Thank you so much for joining us on the SEAC podcast. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.